Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. The Other Hand is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Morning, everyone. Hi, Jim. Great to see you again. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do a one-topic pod, and the subject is going to be the contents of a Substack piece I wrote last weekend, which is all about the affliction, as I see it, of identity politics. I'll just jump straight into it and invite Jim to comment as as appropriate. I begin the piece with three anecdotes. They are all trivial in their own way, but I think that they amount to something important. And they explain something about what's going wrong with our public discussion of so many different issues, from our domestic politics in many countries all the way through to the war in Gaza. I stress at the outset that I don't think that what's being posited here is a theory of everything, but let's explain as we go along exactly what I mean. The three anecdotes start with me somewhat unusually wandering into an art gallery recently. I happen to be in the north of England, and it was in a university up there, And in this art gallery, part of the exhibition was about gender. And all of the artists were trying in various ways to make the same point. That was gender is a purely social construct. There are various paintings, various drawings, various sculptures in all sorts of different ways, all making the point that gender, according to the artists, has no connection to biology or any other kind of physical process. Relatedly, the following day, I happened to be chatting to a gynecologist who told me all sorts of interesting things, one being that he'd been on some courses recently where he was re-educated, and I choose that word carefully. I'm thinking of the re-education camps of uh, the communist era in places like Russia and China, and and I don't think I'm exaggerating too much, maybe a little. During this re-education process, he was encouraged nay, instructed that the word woman in his work as a gynecologist was no longer to be used and that the only acceptable words were things like pregnant people or pregnant person. The third relatively trivial also anecdote uh, came from a substack written by a very good author called Josh Barrow. He writes lots of great stuff and thoroughly recommend his substack. And he tells us a story from Berkeley University in California And there was recently a college football game involving Berkeley. 
which, as many people will know, some won't, the college football is a big deal in the United States. And this football game was interrupted by a pitch invasion. The protesters on this pitch invasion were calling for the reinstatement of a suspended Berkeley professor of colonial studies. It's a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Essentially, this professor of colonial studies has been harassing in various ways another professor. This one is from the University of Davis, which is also in California. And the protesters felt so strongly about this professor of colonial studies suspension from Berkeley University that they are threatening to go on hunger strike. And the facts of the case are that the professor that has been suspended has done things which, according to the university authorities and various reports, these are facts. She keyed the other professor's car. She set out his outside his apartment and slid threatening notes under his door, spray-painted awful slogans in the hallway outside his apartment, and did all sorts of stalking, harassing-type things, including faking social media accounts where she sent messages to herself, allegedly from the other professor. She doesn't contest any of these facts, and she is frustrated that police and the Berkeley administrators are not taking her delusional hacking claims seriously, and so she has continued. The protesters also have not contested these facts, but instead they're making several accusations against the investigating Berkeley authorities. They believe the suspension of the professor is both sexist and racist. When the facts of the case are put in front of these protesters, they say, and this is a quote, they do make for uncomfortable reading, but those facts, that uncomfortable reading, are irrelevant. For her supporters, the only salient facts are that a member of a historically oppressed group is up against a member of a group that has historically been the oppressor. So this uh, oppressed person is uh, a woman and she is also non-white. And the other guy, the professor who has been stalked and harassed, is both male and white. And those are the only facts that is irrelevant. Barrow says that this is a particular example, trivial in and of itself, of a more general phenomena that has emerged over the last decade or so from US universities in general, humanities departments in particular. And it's, to, again, to quote him, obsession with structural factors has led people on the identity-obsessed left to discard the idea that people are individual moral actors with responsibility for their actions. Instead, they rely on a moral framework that looks solely at a person's or group's position within a hierarchy of oppression, awarding culpability in any conflict to the person who ranks as less oppressed, regardless of actually existing evidence about who did what and why. Barrow does go on to argue that all facts, when reframed in an oppressor versus oppressed context, can and are turned on their head, usually by the hard left. And we see this in this country, certainly in the UK as well. All racism, according to this line of thinking, is white supremacy. So only racists are white. So the only racists are white, sorry. Oppression against LGBTQ plus people in parts of Africa and the Middle East, for example, are solely the result of past white, usually British, colonial oppression. Israelis are white colonialists and so on. The only frame of reference, says Barrow, is the one of systems of oppression. Oppressed people can never do wrong. Guilt can, cannot be experienced by the oppressed. 
Now, Jim, I think that Barrow is onto something here. I think he overstates his case a little bit, and I'll come on to why in a minute. But in terms of how all of this kind of stuff informs our current political square, I think it's onto something. I think it's relevant. And I explore in the article why I think it's relevant. What was your reaction to these three anecdotes, Jim? When I read the piece by Josh Barrow last week, um, initially, I went and looked at the definition of identity politics. And, you know, one definition is that it's politics based on a particular identity, such as race, nationality, religion, gender, sexual orientation, social background, caste and social class. Okay, so I, I had to get a clear understanding in my own mind as to what identity politics actually is. Um, I then read the Josh Barrow piece and um, I, I was absolutely astounded. Um, and it has so many, okay, you might say it's a pretty trivial story in a sense. It involves a two, uh, well, one of those professors, Del Val, who is the lady in, sorry, am I using loud? I think so, for the purposes maybe. of this podcast. Okay, the female professor in UC Berkeley, which is sometimes referred to in San Francisco, San Francisco as the People's Republic of Berkeley. She is described as a left wing. Um, and the other professor, Joshua Clover in UC Davis in California, also is described as a communist academic. So here we have two sort of extreme, well, I guess they're on the same side of the political spectrum, but involved in this very unedifying conflict. But you, you may say it's trivial, but clearly it is absolutely dominating every aspect of our lives at the moment. And I was telling somebody in San Francisco at the weekend um, about this story, and he just turned around and said to me, do you now understand why so many people in this country vote for Trump? Because somebody like Trump is seen as a reaction to this sort of shit, to be perfectly honest. Okay. Yeah, um, I actually come round to that at the end of my Substack article. Yeah. I'd like to explore that point that you made but, there very well in, in, but, but, in but Chris, a moment. Yeah, can, can I just ask you how, I mean, this identity politics thing seems to feed into every aspect of life at the moment in relation to, and we've discovered this over the last few weeks, weeks in relation to the Israel-Hamas conflict at the moment, there is no middle ground. There's no sense of nuance. You're on one side or the other, full stop. And anybody that tries to argue the center ground is absolutely uh, destroyed, is either described as anti-Semitic or um, pro-Israel. You know, there, there's no sense of nuance here whatsoever. It, it is destroying discourse. I mean, I, I think it's destroying journalism. I think it's destroying a lot of political commentary. And I think most importantly of all, it is destroying social discourse. I mean, how are people meant to possibly discuss debate issues if this is the sort of radical approach that's been adopted? And the notion that a female professor in UC Berkeley could turn around and make these claims and to be proved to be actually uh, fabricating the truth, putting it mildly, and yet she has engendered all of this strong support from within the college and indeed um, from a, a lot of other academia within that college particularly. So it's, it's mad stuff. Yeah, and I think that you've just 
raise an incredibly important point there because one of the many consequences that have flowed from this new way of thinking, as I say, it's emerged from the humanities department of mostly American, often very minor universities. And it's a few academics that have essentially, in my opinion, just been trying to make a fast buck by appearing on various documentary programs, writing books, writing articles, making highly remunerated speeches, that sort of thing. I think making money is at least part of this. Another part is that this thinking has just become fashionable, become faddish, and that, that that's just the nature of ideas. That's the nature of fashion, isn't it? Sometimes it's a mystery as to why we all of a sudden start wearing flares again, why all of a sudden we take up these ideas. It's just something that happens in the way that a virus spreads. I too have moved, been moved to go and read up on identity politics much more deeply than I've ever done before. It's something I've thought about a lot over the last few years because I've noticed these sorts of things happening. And I came across a book, uh, a recent, relatively recent book by somebody called Jaska Monk. Apologies if I've mispronounced his name. It's called The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. Super book. And he wrote an article uh, largely based on his book in the London Times only this weekend, for instance. And he was on the airwaves promoting his book in the UK last week, which drew my attention to it. And he describes, I think, uh, essentially an overview of what I've just been talking about with my three anecdotes. He, he calls it an identity synthesis. And that says that this synthesis, this bunch of ideas that have emerged from U.S. universities claim that we can un only understand the world. We can only understand the world when we frame everything, everything in terms of race, gender, and sexual orientation. So it's a way of thinking about the world in these three terms. Liberal democracies, according to this synthesis, serve only really to obscure white privilege, according to these new ways of thinking and the related ways the oppressors still dominate the oppressed. People who argue in this way, they, they actually, says Monk, wish, wish to remake the state and society. So these are big ideas with big ambitions. They wish to remake the state and society such that our laws and behavioral norms are determined solely solely by which identity group we belong to. So this is massive in terms of the scale of its ambition. And it has seeped into political discourse, it's seeped into corporate behavior, it's seeped into the way in which my gynecologist friend is allowed to use language. And I think that that's one important conclusion or point that emerges from all of this, one out of many. The key one for me is the rejection of free speech. And if, if I might just, just, just finish that point, I'll let you come in there. Sorry, I'm talking too much again, as usual. And so th this is very consequential. People might think, as I indeed said, that my examples are trivial, but their consequences are massive. And uh, I think the first massive consequence is that we're not allowed to speak freely anymore. We all have to watch our language. We've had to do it on this podcast many times. We've often said, as you have asked me today, for instance, it's not the first time you've said to me, am I allowed to say this? Of course you're allowed to say it. Free speech is a fundamental right but we are now being denied that right by these people. The second major aspect, almost as important as the denial of free speech, relates to the example that Josh Barrow was writing about, the two professors and the facts of the case there. 
is that facts don't matter. Facts and data are no longer relevant to the argument when you see everything in terms of race, gender, and sexual orientation. So you can be the harasser, but because you are of a particular gender and or sexual orientation and or particular race, in a sense, in a very real sense, you're entitled to your own facts. Remember, Donald Trump's press secretary famously said, that Donald is entitled to his own facts. This is what stems from all of this stuff. So it is massively consequential. It's already moved from the trivial examples that we have cited, and we could cite many others, into two very important areas of everyday life, free speech and the rejection of reality. And I think we could go on and on about citing the different ways in which we can talk about this and give various examples. But it's all about slicing and dicing and putting people into different boxes in the ways that I've described, race, gender, and sexual orientation. Um, Relatedly, there's another way in which these people do this sort of thing, and it permeates their literature, speeches, and other ways in which they communicate. And uh, this relates to your point about Donald Trump. They very much put people into two boxes. They really do simplify it down into non-whites and whites. And one is the good guys, the other is the bad guys. And I think that's why you can make that point about Donald Trump in that even if you're not familiar with all of the the, the writings and speeches of these professors around the world who are peddling all of this stuff, you discern the fact that some people out there are having a go at you because you are white. Now, you you can react to that appropriately and inappropriately to the extent that that gives food or fuel to white supremacists. Clearly, that's just one wrong leading to another big, even bigger wrong. And you can go off in all sorts of different directions there. But as you say, as your friend in San Francisco said, if you think that you are under attack for your color, as indeed people of all different colors over the years have reacted, you can react very, very strongly. And so you begin to understand in a really weird kind of way why some people under attack in this way from these humanities professors are thinking, well, maybe Donald Trump is my last defender. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember this person saying to me about 10 years ago that the the worst thing you can possibly be in San Francisco at that stage, and it hasn't changed is a white, middle-class, middle-aged, heterosexual male. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I remember again. I think I talked about this podcast on this podcast a long time ago, where I was having a chat with a recruiter, a headhunter in London. And uh, it was about a particular position that this recruiter had phoned me up about. And she sighed at the end of the conversation, well, very quickly into the conversation. She cut it short by telling me, actually, Chris, I hadn't realized that you are 
older than average, uh, you are white, and you are a male. And um, I'm afraid on all those criteria, you stand no chance of getting this or indeed any similar position in UK corporates now. No chance at all. Uh, so unfortunately, the conversation has to end now. There is one element of that that actually issues like gender equality, for example. Um, I mean, the whole system was totally biased against females, and it, it was certainly necessary. 100%. It was certainly necessary to re- re- revert back to a more normal situation. But as is always the case in these issues, it goes way too far in the other direction. That's and, an incredibly uh, important point you make there, yeah. Jim, because, you know, absolutely, we need more diversity. Absolutely, we need zero discrimination. Absolutely, we need a meritocracy if one is achievable. We need all. Of, we need equality. Absolutely. All of these arguments are 100% correct. But as with so many ideas throughout history, if you run with this idea and take it to uh, an extreme position, you end up making the original situation even worse than the point at which you started. And I think that's what you've just alluded to there, is that you've taken some good ideas and pursued them to a ludicrous conclusion. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this over the weekend, and I was thinking about the role of social media. And the older I get, and from day to day, I become more and more convinced that actually I shouldn't look at social media at all. But Having said that, Twitter or X as it, as it is now does have some useful stuff. You know, you get access to a lot of decent stuff. So I would hate to give up social media, but you do tend to get the impression that social media is really amplifying all of this stuff. But, and that may have been true at a certain point in time, but I, I do sense now it is starting to delve into much more sinister and serious implications for life in general. Um, I remember about 10 years ago writing a report on the economic arguments around immigration. Okay, and I, I use Ireland as a specific case study and indeed the United States. But Ireland, you know, I was looking at the role that um, immigrants had played in the development of the Irish economy. And I was standing up it was inside the mansion house presenting statistics on the evolution of the Irish workforce, um, the non-national contribution, et cetera, et cetera. And I was arguing that one of the biggest problems with inward migration um, is that if they are not, if, if migrants coming into a country are not fully brought, brought into the system. The point I was making, Chris, is that one of the biggest problems that inward migration causes is that the migrants who come into a country are not fully integrated into um, work life, social life, etc. And then you, you start to get all sorts of social problems. So I, I was making arguments about, number one, the very strong case for inward migration, um, certainly from an economic perspective. But I was also arguing that there are significant policy implications here, you know, and they all revolved around proper integration. An academic from Trinity Uh, She stood up and had a real go at me over my use of language. She said, you shouldn't be calling these people non-nationals. That is a derogatory term. And I responded that I was actually using CSO data. And that was the term that was used by the CSO. And I said to her, so you're, you're, you're ignoring all of the policy implications I'm talking about because you don't like the language that I actually use to describe 
inward migrants coming into a, a country. But that kind of, and that was more than 10 years ago, Chris, and that kind of said it all to me at that stage, that if we become blinded by this sort of identity stuff, that we really ignore the bigger issue, which is policy making and proper policy making. And, and I think we've seen the results of that. There, an, another point I'd just like to make is that in the United States, there is certainly um, a narrative put out by the more extreme Republicans that this whole woke agenda, identity politics, etc., that it's all been driven by the Democrats and Biden is certainly seen as the devil in this regard. Do you think that people like Biden have been instrumental in driving this agenda because Biden certainly has increasingly become very much a liberal politician, more so than he ever was, I guess, in a past life. I think the other word that one might use is progressive. That's another American term for for at least part of this, this movement. And they've hijacked, as indeed language is often hijacked in this way, I think Biden has gone down the path of nodding to and bending to some of this new way of thinking. In my book, a wee bit too much, but I don't think he's been instrumental to answer your question directly. I think he's blown with the wind on this one rather than driving it. I think that there are sections of the Democratic Party clearly who have gone a long way along this road, um, are very much part of this. I imagine a lot of the professors that have initiated all this stuff are Democrats. Uh, in in the United States, somewhat interestingly, from our perspective, the Democrats often are described as hard left, um, which is which is always uh, very different to the way we think in this part of the world about what hard left and hard right actually means. So yeah, Biden shares a little bit of responsibility for not standing up to some of the lunacies of this stuff, because I suspect his heart's in the right place. Actually, that he agrees with what we were saying earlier on that. All of the diversity agenda, the equality agenda, the anti-racist agenda, you know, people who push that, those agendas, their hearts are in the right place. We need much more of all of that. And that's why he's gone along with it. And unfortunately, that means that uh, coming up from the side, if you like, or the horse that's running on the outside, that is this more sinister aspect to this and more generally that pushing these ideas, these very good ideas to ludicrous conclusions. That's that's what, what I think Biden has been victim of. The, the interesting question, of course, and I suppose we, we should ask a, a psychologist or a neuroscientist like, like our friend Shane about this, is why people are so susceptible to this. And in my Substack piece, and I'd be really interested to know whether you think this is barking up the wrong tree or not, I think that this sort of thinking, this pushing all of these ideas to their ludicrous conclusions, and in particular, the framing of all, the theory of everything, that we should be fitted into one of three boxes or three overlapping boxes about race, gender, sexual orientation, uh, or what, or even two boxes, whites and non-whites, is really just one up from astrology. One of the things that I, I suppose, one of the ways in which I'd answer this question as to why we're susceptible to this way of thinking is that we always have um, the reason why astrology forever has been really important is that we find it somehow psychologically comforting to fit ourselves, our personalities, our behaviors, our futures into one of 12 zodiac star signs and that we uh, see these horoscopes 
as somehow being relevant, important, and based in some kind of reality, when we all know, at least a different part of our brain knows, that they're complete fictions. You see it in corporate life, Jim. You probably have done this at some point in your career. I certainly have. Sent for for an away day by the bosses of the firm where these very expensive consultants put us into boxes, uh, one such being the Myers-Briggs analysis. I, I remember going on a different one, a sort of Myers-Briggs style analysis. It wasn't Myers-Briggs in particular, but we were all these, you know, a, a large group of executives put into one of four different boxes and it was driver, driver, analytical, analytical, analytical driver, all these ridiculous in a way, just zodiac star signs saying that if you're in one of, you've got all of these different people with all of these different personalities, all of these different behavioral traits, all of these different ways of thinking, and you fit each and every one of you into one of four and only four boxes. It's ridiculous. It's astrology. But the firms fell for it. Everybody present at this this session that I was at absolutely loved it and went, yeah, I'm in that box. That is me. It's nuts. And I think this way of framing this theory of everything that people have about race, uh, gender, and all that stuff that we've been talking about is just one step up from that. It's putting, it's appealing to our tendencies to always want to simplify and to explain and to to understand in very you know very complex phenomena, and we we just strongly resist the idea that you know it's really complicated and we have a very imperfect understanding of the way these things work we have a a, a very imperfect understanding of the chaos of the universe let alone our own planet and our own individual behavior so i think it appeals to our need for simple explanations about the meaning of life if you like and that's why people fall for it but i think that we have fallen for it and i think it is permeating our public square but um unlike perhaps josh barrow who who did say that this is an explanation for everything at the moment. It isn't a theory of everything. I think it's a theory of a lot of things. I think that, uh, in a way, uh, Josh is, is is falling into the same trap as the humanities professors who promulgate these these fashionable ideas. In that uh, we do do what we do as human beings for all sorts of different reasons. It may well be because we are structural racists. <laughs> Frankly. I, I, I doubt, uh, as you can probably tell, um, that putting us into these boxes does make any sense at all. We do things for all sorts of different reasons. Again, we imperfectly understand. We should be more willing to say, I don't know. And uh, yes, these these things, these new ideas have do explain a lot of what's going on, but they don't explain everything that's going on. So, for example, you could explain the Israeli Gaza thing in terms of as some of these people do and have done uh, in terms of whites versus non-whites that the first thing that that comes up against is that an awful lot of Israelis are non-white so the facts don't accord with the explanation for what's going on over there but the facts as I have said don't don't matter but of course the Israeli Hamas situation encompasses many different dimensions many different aspects of complexity it's not just about structural racism or colonial versus uh, colonial oppressors versus uh, the people who are colonized and oppressed you can analyze it using that frame of reference and maybe there are motivations along those lines but it is much more complicated than that so yes i think this is a, an important strand of thinking to identify we need to resist it and we need to resist its implications more than anything else how do we resist it 
with things like this, Jim. I mean, we can't, you and I can't do very much, but I think it behoves all of us to do something. And I think the most important things to defend are uh, freedom of speech and the existence of objective reality, the importance of facts and data. Because the two things that this new line of thinking, I think, are the most sinister amongst many sinister things are those two things. And so I think what people like us must do is insist that at least you and I in these discussions, and God bless our listeners, the people who are listening to us, is that what we are trying to do is speak freely and try to identify to the extent that we can where objective reality, what the facts point us towards, whilst at the same time acknowledging the massive uncertainties and massive complexities of most of the things that we end up discussing, that we don't fall into these traps of making our own shit up. Yeah, this weekend, The Economist has a piece on how to cancel cancel culture. I mean, all, all of these things are very related, but this definitely feeds into the whole cancel culture uh, phenomenon that's now becoming so all-intrusive, basically, in political and social life. Well, cancel culture for me is denial of free speech. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that definitely is one thing that has flowed from this. The other thing, of course, is uh, all of the stuff about trigger warnings and creating safe spaces for people because we have to acknowledge people's sensitivities when it comes to things like race, gender and sexual orientation. Um, the, the, The idea of creating safe spaces at the moment seems almost laughable in the context of what's going going on in the world. And uh, certainly running onto a pitch to try and disrupt a football game, it seems far removed from me, from the sensitivities of creating safe spaces for, for sensitive people. Stalking and harassing is, is the opposite of, of what was originally intended. But these are all examples of pushing these ideas to ludicrous conclusions. It's, it's, it is uh, quite weird. But I would say that one of the things that comes out of all of this is that I have actually a slightly deeper understanding, not necessarily agreement with or not agreement with at all, actually, about why people therefore say that Donald Trump is my defender, why things like Brexit were a good idea, why why people like Nigel Farage, and I abhor Nigel Farage and all that he stands for, but I have a deeper understanding, not agreement with, but a deeper understanding of why people feel under attack, why some people feel under attack, and therefore gravitate towards politicians who erroneously, in my view, claim to be the defenders of these people who are under attack. Yeah, well, that's political polarisation, isn't it? If you get polarisation at one side of the spectrum, um, the obvious place to go is polarisation at the other end. And regardless of what Trump does or does not believe, he sees this now as a significant a political strategy that proved successful in 2016 and could prove successful again next time out. I mean, that that is the danger from all of this. And of course, if you are a sort of a sensible person in the middle ground, and I regard the middle ground as a sensible place to be, to be honest, because uh, I think the centre is where most logical discussion takes place and where most decent policymaking actually emanates from. But this is just a phenomenon of the increased polarization of everything. The problem, of course, is that those sensible people in the middle are afraid to stand up and shout stop. Well, you asked what we can do, Jim, and that's yeah. precisely what we can do is, is, is stand up and say stop, which is what we're and doing. What if we're cancelled, Chris? Beg your pardon? What if we're cancelled? Well, 
if if we're cancelled, the only way we can be cancelled really is if people stop listening to us. It won't actually stop us doing this. We would still be doing this even if we had zero listeners. Thankfully, we have thousands of listeners. One of the things I think we, uh, I call it in the piece, uh, call us in the piece, flabby liberals. One of the things that we are guilty of is that we have vacated the centre ground and allowed ourselves to be cancelled and watched as these society, our societies have moved to a certain extent to these political extremes. There are still plenty of us left in the centre, but I think, and this is our little contribution to that, we need to make more noise and reclaim the centre ground and not leave the political landscape vacated so that these people, in a sense, fill the vacuum that we have left behind. And you can see this in all sorts of different ways. It's not entirely relevant, but you can see what happens to cultures and countries and political systems when the centre is eviscerated. Yeats wrote a poem about it. Northern Ireland is an example of you know the centre ground once dominant, uh, completely absent now, as far as I can tell, not completely absent, but political landscape dominated by two different extremes. And the problem with all of this pushing good ideas to ludicrous political conclusions is that it, it does push people to extremes because you then get the yin to the yang. As we said, we got Donald Trump's yang to all of this extreme, call it wokeness, call it identity politics, it all ends up at the same place. One needs the other. And if people like us say nothing, then we stand condemned in my view. So I think it's 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 appropriate for us to to stand up we will take huge brickbats on social media for what we have said today. No doubt we might even lose some listeners. But you know what, Jim, we might gain some as well. Yeah, we might indeed. Uh, I have a very good friend uh, who absolutely infuriates me by referring to people uh, in a positive way as progressives. Well, that the feck is the definition of a progressive. Uh, to me, um, and just one other sort of random thought here is that the classic definition, I was going to say an Irish liberal, but the classic definition of a liberal is somebody who's open to all ideas as long as they agree with their own. So I think we should leave it at that, Chris. Fascinating discussion, and I think it's something we will return to, particularly if we're cancelled. We'll invite all listeners, should they wish to comment, uh, give us some feedback as to what they think. Let's keep it civilised if we can. And let's try and have an ongoing discussion about this. This is not something we're going to do in every podcast, but I suspect, Jim, it is a subject to which we will return. So thanks for a great discussion. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Good to talk. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 
It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.